I, I think you can talk yourself into any team that's left losing and most of the teams that are left winning. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Hello and welcome. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, your twice-weekly show about the largest division of college football. We welcome you to podcast number 265, the one with eight teams not named Mount Union. It's season 13, number 28, or the podcast for December 6th of 2019. I'm Pat Coleman. I'm the executive editor of D3Football.com. And I'm Keith McMillan, a longtime co-host and former player. I'm beginning to see top podcast lists come out for the end of the year. You know, 100 outstanding podcasts of 2019. I have yet to see this one out there, uh, but I feel that uh, I feel I don't know if I feel outstanding. I feel like I would be out somewhere standing if someone put our name on a list of something like that. Mm, I think we should at least be in the top 100 college football podcasts not talking about Division One college football. Man, you would think we'd probably be able to get into the top 100 podcasts about college football just in general, right? I mean, I didn't want to overshoot our uh, whatever here. You want to stay in our? We want to stay in our lane, huh? There you go. Not you know, not be let's be a little humble. It is a. Uh, of course, we're coming up on the national quarterfinals. We're down to those final eight teams, which will all kick off at noon Eastern and or noon Central time on uh, Saturday. December 7th. Kind of disappointed that we can't somehow stagger those two kickoffs between uh, you know, the, the game hosted at Wheaton and then the game hosted at North Central, which everybody on this podcast and everybody who listens to this podcast should know that they are 8.1 miles apart. It would be great if we could do that, uh, but unfortunately, we're going to be stuck kind of flipping back and forth. It would be nice to be able to stretch that out over a big day of football. Absolutely. Brilliant. I mean, the stagger thing, We've, I guess we've had that discussion as long as we've had the NESCAC should be in the playoffs discussion or uh, some of the other long-time running thoughts that we have about how to improve D3. And, you know, I think it made a lot of sense when this rule was first conjured up um, to have all playoff games kick at noon because a lot of schools didn't have uh, lights. Yeah. And so, um, or, you know, if, if you got to get back on the bus and you don't want to take another day, you you got you got to get back at a certain hour, and, and you don't have to you don't have money to stay in a hotel Friday night and Saturday night. Then the game's over at four, and you get on the bus by six, and you're back or you're whatever. I think the it was originally it made sense, but I think now that college um um you know broadcasts are ubiquitous, and they're every college has. Uh, a way to show these games to one another. It would be cool to be able to watch um, the one that starts before you. I mean, imagine sitting in Crusader Stadium in Belton, Texas, and you're you're waiting for UMHB UW Whitewater to kick off, and you're watching the end of St. John's Wheaton. You know, I, I, it would be cool if we could do that. So I guess we can bang this drum again, but I almost feel like no one else sees the incentive as much as. Uh, those of us who follow this this time of year do and, and there would need to be somebody in Indianapolis pushing for this for us I need to take this time to mention that the d3football.com around the nation podcast is sponsored by gotta have it you know gotta have it if you've listened to this podcast anytime over the course of the last three months these are the officially licensed 3d foam fan wall signs seen in offices or cubes or dens or dorm rooms or whatever across 
America. They've got a half dozen of the Division Three schools already on this list that you can find at gottahabitfanfoams.com. I would say that if you are trying to shop for holiday purposes, you better get this done now because you know how shipping is and all that. You want to get it in, in your hands in time for that Division Three fan who you are shopping for. And if you're a school that's not on this list, then scroll down on the page. If we don't carry your favorite team or mascot, let us know. That's how you can contact them, get the whole licensing thing going, and get onto this list because this is a pretty cool thing that we have in Division Three. Absolutely, and it's a, it's a product that, as we say every week, you can hang up at your house, you can take it off the wall, take it to the game, come back home, put it back on your wall. It's that um, light, and, and then I think it's also that durable. One quarter of the team still alive in the postseason. Have a gotta have it fan phone. Probably should be more than that. <laughs> Are you saying I, I there think should we're be, in a good place. Are you saying there should be more teams alive or that the other six teams should all have done this already? I think the the latter is uh, is what I was saying, but you could interpret it that way as well. I think there are going to be some folks on the right side of the bracket who go to the Stag Bowl for the first time and are going to want something like this, and, and instead they're going to have to go to CVS or Walgreens right before the game, buy a marker, buy a poster board, and write something on a board. Who wants to do that? It's, you don't have to, 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 to go to those lengths. You just get your gotta have it fan foam. And uh, you've already got the team logo, something you can wave uh, at Shenandoah. What's it called? Wood Forest Bank Stadium in Shenandoah? Ding, ding, ding. It's it. a good pull. Well done. So go to gottahaveitfanfoams.com. And if you are one of those teams that's still alive that has one of them, yeah, you do not want to be the person who shows up at the Stag Bowl looking like you've never been there before. Keith, here is the strange thing as we look forward now to our quarterfinal round. It's a round in which we don't have Mount Union. And how often have we been in this position to have a, you know, to hear, be here previewing a round that has four games and doesn't have the Purple Raiders in it? I, I think the answer is actually zero times. Yeah, I was going to say, is that a trick question? Because the whole reason it was such a big deal is not because the fifth ranked team in the country beat the number one ranked team, right? That's not outlandish. It was because Mount Union has gone out in the second round. And uh, that's never happened in the time that we've been doing this. It hasn't happened since 1994, I guess. And even then, um, when they went out in the second round, there was a round of 16. So they were still in the quarterfinals. They, the last time they were not in the quarterfinals was 91, was, which is also the last time they were not in the playoffs. But at some point, we have to turn the page from who's not playing this week to who is playing this week. So welcome to the Friday podcast where we will do that. And I think the great thing about the this round coming up is that we're devoid of some of the recurring storylines. And I feel like these are the negative storylines, you know, complaining about it's the same old teams in purple always getting there. And yes, Mary Harden Baylor, UW Whitewater, they are on the other side of the bracket, but one of them is going out in this round because they're playing each other. And the other six teams uh, don't even wear purple, no purple shoelaces or socks or off colors. You know, maybe somebody in the stands might wear purple at a Del Val game, but that'd be a weirdo. So you don't have that storyline. You don't have the complaints about how the East teams aren't worthy or they can never make it to the Stag Bowl. You have three Eastern teams, although they're, they're actually two from each region because Muhlenberg is South region, but it's in Pennsylvania. Uh, Delaware Valley, Salisbury, 
Muhlenberg, three Eastern seaboard teams, regardless of whether they're truly uh, in the East region or not. Uh, those teams are uh, all live and have a good chance to get to the stag bowl, whether you think it's a 75% chance um, against North Central or slightly less than that. I don't think you can say for sure that North Central is going to the stag bowl. I think they'd probably be the odds-on favorite to come from that side, but it wouldn't be by much. So we've got this great round coming up, and I think you can say, Pat, that you and I are sort of – we would always – boost up the round and say it's a great round, but I, I think you can go back two weeks podcast and, and you can hear us say, eh, round one, it's going to have some duds in it. It'll have a few great games. This has no duds in it. That's interesting. Let's, I'm going to dwell, dwell on that for just a second uh, because I think I saw you on Twitter post uh, someone's official betting lines or people posted official betting lines and then directed them at us or you for comment, right? And everything was, uh, slated to be a double-digit victory game. Like, I could see Salisbury winning by double digits. Um, I could see Wheaton winning by double digits. I could see uh, Mary Harden-Baylor definitely winning by double digits. What did I leave out? Did I leave out North Central? Definitely North, see, North Central I can see North Central winning by double digits as well. Then we have the potential, obviously, for some great games because we have the highly ranked teams, right? But we also have, you know, I think teams that would be favored and favored by slightly more than a touchdown, I guess. And I don't know where those numbers came from, but they were, you know, to have Mary Harden Baylor expected to win by 13 points, I think is a surprise. I've done my quick hits picks for the weekend already. Those will go up Friday at noon, but we can turn them into Greg Thomas anytime during the week, right? There's no reason we have to wait until Friday, and I'm usually the person who waits the latest or second latest out of the group. Um, but I did mine already, and I've got three one-score games and one uh, decided by a couple of touchdowns. And I think if you've paid attention to the the way I've talked about these few games, you can figure out which one is um, is the one I think that will have a, a not that close finish. And then I think the other three Again, could you could see Salisbury or Muhlenberg beating the other one by a couple of touchdowns, but I don't think that would be the expectation for me. I'd, I'd pick a one-score game. And, of course, the quick hits uh, is all about the expectation. We're trying to give you an idea of what is possible on Saturday. Uh, you can read that uh, coming up on the site a little bit later. If you're someone who downloads and listens to this podcast right out of the gate, definitely appreciate that. Uh, we do expect to have... Quick hits, more like noon central. It is not Keith who's the last one. It is somebody else. Okay, so uh, we are going to, of course, uh, go through all four games here on this podcast, and then uh, we'll talk a little bit more after that about uh, you know what what maybe our expectations are for those games. Uh, before we uh, and we also have an interview with Duke Greco. He's the head coach of Delaware Valley. The Aggies, of course, going to the national quarterfinals, going to Chicago getting on a plane. These are things that uh, don't often happen for Delaware Valley, other than going to the quarterfinals because they were there just a couple of years ago. Uh, also, of course, it is uh, coaching carousel season. You know, we mentioned this on every podcast, but there's uh, typically a couple more to talk about. I think the most uh, interesting one, Keith, is uh, Dan McNeil, who's been the head coach at Cortland for 23 seasons. Uh, announced uh, that he was retiring. We got that announcement on Wednesday morning. And, uh, you know, that's a guy who's been there for slightly longer than we've had a website. Well, not only that, I 
was, you know, face to face with Dan McNeil a couple weeks ago when we covered the Cortica Jug game, and I got no outward indication that he was tired or or finished or unhappy to be there or whatever. And I don't necessarily mean that someone who is retiring is is definitely feeling those emotions, but no, I didn't think there was any hint of it for the outsiders. You know, maybe people around Cortland knew or, or had an idea was coming, but it was a bit of a surprise. And, and I think he's been a uh, a uh, strong leader for Cortland for several years. The other change that came out this week, Kevin Burke, who's been the head coach at Gettysburg for the past two years and was a longtime assistant under longtime head coach Barry Streeter, is out after two seasons. Uh, the Bullets just went uh, uh, one and nine this past season. They went one and nine the season before, and they'll be looking for somebody else. Yeah, and, and maybe a, a, a completely fresh voice from outside the program. What if Kevin Burke got replaced by Kevin Burke, the offensive coordinator and uh, excuse me, the passing game coordinator and quarterbacks coach at Case Western Reserve, which was a playoff team this season. And of course, the reason we'd bring that Kevin Burke up is he is a former Gallardi Trophy winner. I guess you're always a Gallardi Trophy winner, even though you've won it in the past year. Uh, and the former Mountain Union quarterback. He's twice a Gallardi Trophy winner. Also, the reason why I have to, every time we wrote a, a headline about Kevin Burke, uh, I had to specify that this is a Kevin Burke who graduated from Gettysburg in 1990. And that way, most people, I think, would be able to realize he was not also the Mountain Union quarterback. Also, award season, of course. We've talked about the Gallardi Trophy. Uh, the Gallardi Trophy fan voting is still open through the 9th of December, 1 p.m. Eastern. So if you haven't cast your fan ballot on any device that you can beg, borrow, or steal, or walk through the library or the, you know, the Apple store, I don't know, uh, go ahead and do that. We will be announcing the D3Football.com All-Region team on December 10th. Uh, we'll be doing the making the Gallardi Trophy finalist announcement on December 12th. We'll be announcing our All-America team on December 19th and also the Gallardi Trophy winner on December 19th. So that is how the award schedule is going to go from here, obviously, it's uh, you know about six days later than last year all across the board, but the season started and was played all the way across the board six days later. So there you go. Now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by Duke Greco, the head coach at Delaware Valley University. His team headed to the Chicagoland area to take on North Central College on Saturday. Coach, uh, congratulations uh, on the uh, run so far, and how are things going? Uh, thanks, Pat. Thanks, thanks for letting me be on. Uh, things are going well, man. We're happy. You know, we'll get a chance here in the Elite Eight, and uh, we're just excited to, to get to uh, North Central and see, you know, see how we can perform. And I should mention that uh, Coach is joining us by phone. If occasionally the uh, audio clicks out and clicks back in again, I apologize in advance. Um, Coach, obviously the uh, round of eight is and the quarterfinals is not necessarily new for you guys, even new for the some of the guys on the team or new for the program. But uh, making a trip like this is a little bit out of the ordinary for the Delaware Valley program. Yeah, I think it's been, it's been a different year. Um, you know, we've we have been to this point before. Um, and, you know, we're here two years ago, and, and with our seniors now and juniors, you know, that experience I hope will help them um, for this Saturday. But to do it all on the road is, is definitely uh, unique for us. Um, we, we first round win against, against Bridgewater was the first, you know, first road victory in program history here. So um, to go to Wesley and now, and now take a plane, uh, plane 
out to Chicago is definitely new, but it's also exciting. I think our guys are excited, and um, they just love to play football in this group. So uh, wherever it takes us, we will go. What's it like at this point of the season having to, you know, then come up with something completely new, right? Not, And I'm not even talking about scheme or anything. I'm just talking about the fact that, you know, you guys have been on the road, you've been in buses, that's not anything new, but getting in a plane is something completely different. I think uh, it's all different. I think, and, and even uh, on the bus, some of those trips are a little different. And, and it's just, uh, we try to look at it like, it, like it's new and exciting, not that it's, uh, you know, it's a pain or it, it gets us all focused. I think uh, our guys love football so much that when it's time to practice, when it's time to watch film, when it's time to do those things, it's just they're just doing what they enjoy and they love the preparation part of it. So um, it's a little different how we're doing it, but we'll find a way to get it done. You had the opportunity this past week, obviously, to do something that not a lot of coaches necessarily get to do in that you got to see really up close and personal how your program has progressed over the course of the season. You know, uh, it took uh, quadruple overtime uh, back in week two to uh, for the game against Wesley to be resolved, and you guys came out on the losing end of that. And then, you know, really kind of a completely different performance. So what was the difference? What has improved most for you guys over the course of the 10 weeks in between? Uh, there's, a, there's a ton of things. I, I mean, I, it's, it's weird. I mean, it's one football season, it's a few months, but but that week two, that week two loss feels like years ago. And I don't think that's just me. I think that's the guys here in the team. And I think more importantly, I think here, I think week three, um, we we had the victory. We, we beat Stevenson. I think that though was a that was more of a turning point for us. I don't think we we liked how we played, um, and I think we've been paying more attention to details, especially penalties and, and you know, stressing, you know, getting takeaways and not turning the football over. And from that point on, um, we've been doing a pretty good job of that. And you know, penalties, turnovers. That's definitely part of playoff football, so I think it's translated here to the first two rounds, and knock on wood, hopefully translates to, to where we're going. I think the names that people know on the defensive side of the ball would be the Nobile brothers, who we've talked quite a bit about over the course of the year plus, nearly two years that they've been playing Division Three football. And I know you've got both of those guys healthy, at least as healthy as anybody is in December. Tell us a little bit about those guys and what it you know what it's like having them up front in your defense and what they bring to your defensive uh, front that way? Yeah, I mean, uh, defensively, we were good all the way around. We just, it's, it's, it's a pretty awesome group. I mean, these guys, uh, at every spot, they make plays. Um, you know, Anthony and Mike are, are fantastic players, fantastic people, um, fantastic workers. You know, Sunday through Friday, man, they really get after it. Um, but, I mean, they help us. I mean, they're, they're great players, and I think, you know, we can get pressure on the QB without pressure. It, it, it helps you at the other levels of the defense. And and um, they, they could just change games. Um, I think they did a good job that last week. Stat line versus Wesley. I don't know if we had a stat a sack, but we had a pass rush, and we put pressure on them. And um, it, it was able to translate to some turnovers for, for us. And, um, they can get after the QB. It's a very good job. And, and to me, more important, it's a very consistent. It's a it's an all game thing, all every game thing, which is pretty, which is kind of different. Well, and not to focus inordinately on those two guys, right? So tell us a little bit about who some of the other standout players are on the defensive side of the ball. D. Lyman, and KJ Jones, and off the bench, you have the, you know uh, Yusef Ladinoff, who was like second or third in, in the conference in sacks. Very good players, linebackers, all the way through. Vince DeLeo, 
Billy Walsh's leadership, Tedesco's tough, uh, Ryan Barrett's smart, heady player. And then our secondary is the, the one spot for us. That I just feel like they should they deserve a little more credit. I mean, our corners are very good, uh, Prevard and Justin Harris, and, and our safeties, uh, Dante Mason, Blaine Netterman, it's just so consistent for us all year. And it's, it's it's really a great unit. It's uh, And it's a great unit because we have great players. And Coach Brady um, does an awesome job. Coach Lewis and Coach Wright try to get them in the right spots. But it's just it's a, it's been a fun unit for us to watch. It's one of the best we've had here. When you got to see North Central on tape this week, especially against Mount Union, what did you guys see? What did, you, know, you, you just talked uh, some great things about that secondary, and they're going to be uh, very much tested on Saturday. Yeah, they definitely will. I mean, that North Central is here for a reason. Uh, they beat Mount Union for a reason. They're excellent. Uh, definitely well coached. Definitely have a bunch of talent. It's going to be a real test for us. But I'm just you know, honored to, to take the field against them and have an opportunity to compete against them. Their line is tremendous to QB. Everyone knows the kid is fantastic. And, um, their style of play is tough. I mean, they, they, it will be a tough, tough game. And, and again, they're here for a reason, and they have a lot of talent. Let's talk about the offense for a second. Uh, you know, uh, looking from the the quarterback position, you know, Anthony Fontana uh, has. Uh, you know, I think probably solidified things for you guys over the course of the season. He's thrown just six interceptions compared to 28 touchdowns. And while you know those might not be the most eye-popping numbers in Division Three football, the you know taking care of the ball is very important, especially this time of year. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Anthony's just a, a QBs. A, everyone looks at him different. I mean, for me, I just I think Anthony the most important stat is Anthony's a winner, and he does what it takes to win. I mean, there's some games here where we're going to be we'll be a little more run first. There's other games here where you know, we need to throw it to win, but um, he protects the football like he mentioned, and at the same time, he still has aggressiveness to him. Um, and, you know, he came out the second drive last week, hit Dan now a big play, took advantage of an opportunity. He's, just, he's very intelligent, very smart football player, and he, he, he allows us to do some things and put guys in the right spot. I mean, we give him all, you know, five-man protections, getting guys out, and he just, he just plays the game the way he wants to play it, and he's been doing a good job at it. You mentioned Dan Allen. There's not a lot of uh, passing attacks in Division Three these days that feature the tight end as much as you guys do. Does does he resemble a Division Three tight end, or is he just basically a, a pass catcher now at this point? No, I mean Dan plays attached, Dan unattached. He does a little bit of everything. I think as the season went on, um, he played a little more unattached because it's what the team needed for him to do. Um, he does he, he does a little bit of everything for us, man. Dan is a he's a fantastic player. Um, but he's a, he, he's a great leader, and he's got a tremendous work ethic. I mean, every day. I mean, he's out here. He just he ran a 60-play team script. He ran every single rep. Didn't say a word, man. He just worked his butt off. He's unique, though. He can, he can do a little bit of everything. Man. He's a fantastic player. And we know that, like, uh, Delaware Valley University as a school – uh, is is very much you know focused around the guys in the Philadelphia area and you know people a, across the across the river in New Jersey. But what's like kind of the I don't know the the character of your program or the the character of these guys? Um, yeah, I guess well, we've got some all over the place. We are I guess a little more you know uh, you know Jersey, Philadelphia area, Delaware, Maryland, uh, Maryland, Maryland, Baltimore area. Uh, I think the thing here, and I think the reason we've we've had some success is. Um, Guys picked Alva out for, for school and football. And if you don't love school, if you don't want an education, if you don't love football, it's probably the wrong fit. I mean, um, we try to push our guys pretty hard, but we do that because that's what they want, and that's why they're here. And I think that's where we've had some consistency of late. And, and I, 
I'd be disappointed if someone watched us and just didn't say, man, that's, that team loves to play football. And that's not coaching. That's just the type of kid we have. And Again, I think that's why we've been pretty consistent. Keith, I asked him that last question with the thought that, you know, we kind of get this impression of, and it starts a little bit from the basketball side, too, uh, that the kids who come out of Philly in Division Three basketball are pretty tough, hard-nosed kids. And I think they got the same impression about Philadelphia and South Jersey and Philly suburb guys, even in Division Three football. That wasn't the answer that I got, but I really appreciated what he did say. Well, and, and I think the weird thing is that that's probably true in that these are mostly working-class areas that, that he's recruiting. So most of South Jersey... Philadelphia down through through Baltimore and uh, and other parts of Maryland, even the D.C. suburbs are like mostly pretty working class. There are obviously some nice areas, but those are the kind of kids you you get. And and without falling into like a like a stereotype of being like oh the you know they're the scrappy gritty D three kind of guy who who couldn't you know couldn't quite cut it as a D one player, but just loved the game so much and was so scrappy and great you know i just sometimes that's like a little trite but i do think you're on to something and i think that's pretty um that's pretty true of of delval and the way they've played this season when you when you watch them they have skill guys they have speed there will be some finesse on the field uh in in uh naperville on saturday but you will see a lot of um i mean especially like their their linebackers i think are the and i guess those are the generally tough guys but like you know just guys who do whatever it takes. I, I saw DelVal play against Bridgewater, and they had a rally from nine down in that one and, and play great defense to do so. And I think that's what it's going to take this weekend. You heard uh, Duke Greco talk about his secondary being maybe his best unit. Well, guess what, secondary? You're on. You know, this <laughs> this weekend is like uh, time to shine or, or you go home. And and I remember playing those games. It was us when, when um, we played Catholic, which was your alma mater. You know, especially the year after the 50-50 game, uh, you just know going into the game, like everything's coming at me today, and this is way more fun than getting one pass thrown your way every ten plays, or uh, you know, you, you know, you're always covering your guy, running, running hard, and uh, half the time it's a run play, and you have to come up and run support. I much rather would just be in coverage every play and having them. I, I like when, as a cornerback, you should have this mindset you want them to throw at you as a safety you want them to attack your guy because you get to make plays on the ball and, and you know and if if you get beat it's on you but if you um if you don't you make you start making a few plays you really build your confidence and I think it it builds your confidence for the rest of your defense Duke Greco talked about another thing I think that's really important is getting that pressure from the front four mm-hmm. and then not having to um, blitz guys if you can drop seven into coverage and rush four and I, I think the ends, the brothers that you talked about, are um, give them the ability to do that. And those guys are like, they're like six six feet, two thirty. They're not like monster D ends. They're speed guys, and um, they really cause a lot of problems for for Bridgewater, and uh, caused problems last week. You heard him talk about having a pass rush and uh, and not, you know, even if the sack numbers aren't there, it's good to have a rush. All that stuff is going to have to be there on Saturday. These are guys that uh, have to go on the road for the third consecutive week, and this is a, a big trip and a, and a big deal and a, a different thing, right? You're getting on a you're getting on a charter plane. You're going to Chicago, Chicago land. I know, I know, it's not in the city of Chicago. All you people out there who are like city of Chicago people, I get it. Isn't that why they call it Chicago Land? They have a special name for the metro area. 
in the, in the Philadelphia area, they actually call it the Delaware Valley. So you can live in New Jersey and Pennsylvania and be from the Delaware Valley. Delaware Valley is in Pennsylvania, by the way, for those of you who are not paying attention and to get to the actual uh, point you were prompting. I love playing on the road. I really did. And I, I bet if you asked um, players across D3, a good number of them would say they love playing on the road. And this is especially true in D3 where the home field advantages, except for at a, a few places where the home field advantage is really stark. And, you know, that's probably Crusader Stadium and Clemens Stadium and 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 Perkins Stadium. If if you know which stadiums those teams belong to, that's why, you know, those are the few teams that have the, the home field advantage. But a lot of times you're playing in front of a crowd of 5,000, 7,500, um, and it's a home field advantage. You can certainly hear the crowd get rowdy on big third downs, but it's not like you can't hear the audibles. So the the advantage of playing at home is really just being in your comfort zone. And I think actually it's good as a football team to be out of your comfort zone on the road and to sort of shut out the outside world from Friday or if you have to fly and you leave on Thursday from Thursday and still kick off on Saturday because then all you do is think about football. There's no girlfriend stopping by your room. There's no guys from the frat house saying, come hang out on Friday. I know you can't drink before the game, but just come hang out for a little while. There's none of that. You're just there with your foot, with your football friends. You're focused on um, what you have to do in Saturday's game. And look, this is a, a game for all of these players on every one of these teams on Saturday that they will remember for the rest of their lives, whatever happens, good or bad, they'll, they're going to remember this one. And so in theory, you would say it's easy to just put aside hanging out on Friday or whatever, because you can always hang out in the springtime, right? But it's also like when the temptation is there, it's much easier. It's much harder to say no. So I think just being in a hotel room with your football team, you know, coach might take you to the movies or organize some kind of dinner or something for you to do it, some team bonding and all that stuff. But then you're just in that football space. Um, you get to see somewhere cool that as, uh, as Gordon Mann pointed out to us, a lot of these guys uh, never may never go to Chicago again in their life. So this is a cool trip for them. This is a time for them to just be with their team, think about football, and uh, make a memory. Look, DelVal may not be, in my mind, the, the favorite in this game, but if they play a great game defensively, um, you know they can change the the their, not only their own memories, the the outlook from their entire program. Now it's a Final Four program, uh, potentially a Stag Bowl program. They can change the 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 rest of the bracket, the way it looks now. That other side that is maybe worried about this Wheaton North Central rematch or looking forward to that, now that would be out the window. So they can really do a, a lot. And all it takes is obviously a great week of practice and their best game on Saturdays. But that Friday or the Thursday travel day when you're just like not wasting that day doing anything but but being focused on the game and going over the same stuff you've gone over, uh, I think it can only help to be on the road. So I, I actually loved it as a player. And I think all the, the four teams that are on the road this weekend – don't have an advantage, right? It's still a home field advantage, but they there is something special about about playing on the road. Well, now it's time for our four games to watch. There's four games. We're gonna watch them. You're gonna watch them. And Greg Thomas is gonna start us off by talking about UW Whitewater at Mary Harden Baylor. We're down to just two Purple Powers remaining in this tournament, and they're facing off in Belton on Saturday. In the top left quadrant, we have a rematch of last year's semifinal between Mary Hart and Baylor and Wisconsin Whitewater in a game won 31-14 by the eventual national champion Crusaders. 
Wisconsin Whitewater enters this game coming off of a 41-28 win over Wartburg in round two. The Warhawks leveraged some early Wartburg turnovers to jump out to a 17-0 lead, which turned out to be enough cushion to withstand a late Wartburg push. The Warhawk defense was outstanding last week, forcing five night turnovers on the afternoon, including two interceptions and a forced fumble by linebacker Caleb Kaminsky. Despite the 41 points, the Warhawks were not outstanding offensively in round two. Wartburg limited Whitewater to just 236 yards of total offense. Max Myler, coming off of a four-touchdown performance in round one, threw for just 75 yards on 18 attempts, and that usually outstanding run game was limited to just 3.4 yards per attempt. These numbers have to be concerning this week as Whitewater goes down to face one of the stingiest defenses in the division. The Crusaders bounce back from their low-output offensive first-round game with over 500 yards of offense and a 42-6 win over Huntington. Jace Hammock connected 10 times with John L. Reed for 253 of his 337 passing yards and three touchdowns. The UMHB offense tends to go in fits and starts, but as long as they have Hammock's arm and Reed's speed, they are an offense that can score from any spot on the field. The crew were typically great defensively last week, turning Huntingdon over four times, including three more interceptions to bring their season total to 24. The Crusaders have 39 takeaways on the season, which leads Division Three. Harden-Simmons left a blueprint out there for having a chance against the Crusaders, and it's one that historically the Warhawks are capable of doing. Run, run, and run it some more. The Warhawks don't have to average five or six yards per carry, but they do have to move the chains, control the ball, and limit the number of times that they have to put it in the air. Nobody is better at intercepting passes than these Crusaders. Defensively, Whitewater will have to pressure Jace Hammock and get a takeaway or two. A big strike touchdown involving John L. Reed seems inevitable, but obviously the Warhawks will have to limit those plays. But if they can avoid those explosive plays and frustrate Hammock with pressure, you might see the Crusaders start to tinker with their quarterback personnel and get away from their game plan, which could further benefit the Warhawks. This game definitely shapes up to be a classic defensive slugfest with neither offense taking huge risks and leaning heavily on their defenses. The crew haven't given up more than two touchdowns in a game in the last two seasons, which gives Whitewater very little margin for error. If they give up points to the crew defense or special teams and the score creeps up into the upper 20s or 30s, it's hard to see where the Warhawks will find enough points to match. This game kicks off at 1 Eastern in Belton, Texas. Keith, I'm expecting that if Whitewater's going to win, it's going to have to be in the way that Harden-Simmons almost won that game against Mary Harden-Baylor in the regular season. It would have to be a low-scoring game in which you know they just play field position back and forth. Maybe someone breaks out a long touchdown, and maybe there's a special teams play and something like that. Because I think that's otherwise, I think that uh, I'm just not sure how many points Whitewater is going to score. And those are important things when it comes to winning the game. Yeah, that's an understatement. If you look around the bracket, these other teams have great quarterbacks, great offensive playmakers, or just great offensive systems that have been that have been crushing all season. I don't see a low-scoring game in any of those other three, but I do think you're probably going to get one, um, or you could get one, and, and defense could control the day down in, in Belton. I think Whitewater is built that way. They're, they're totally comfortable running the ball and playing great defense and uh, not getting into a to shootout. I don't think they have the, the quarterback necessarily to go up and down the field with uh, with a team that's you know scoring four, five, six touchdowns. So I, I think they need to keep it in the 21-point the range. Um, but they also they'd love to control control the clock and use their three running backs and not have to put it in a, a quarterback making his third start, not put it in those hands. So 
I think both uh, sides are, and I mean by sides, I mean not just the team, but like the, the fan bases are really uh, excited about this and also a little bit nervous. And I think that's kind of the best way to have a game, you know, not especially if you blow everyone out all season to finally have one where you're like, this one could go either way. And I'm going to be on the edge of my seat probably in the fourth quarter screaming and, and, and you know, whether it's screaming at the laptop or screaming at while you're at the stadium. I think those are the, the, the games that you really cherish over the long haul, especially for the team that comes out on top. You can read even more about this game in Brian Lester's feature, which uh, hit the website on Thursday morning. We're going to send it out now to Adam Turr, who's going to talk about Wheaton and St. John's. For the first time in program history, Wheaton is hosting a quarterfinal game. The Thunder have an opportunity to make even more history by winning their 13th game of the season. To do that, the nation's number one defense will need to contain reigning Gallardi Trophy winner Jackson Erdman. Since being intercepted four times and guiding the offense to just 18 points in a shocking overtime loss to Concordia Moorhead, the St. John's quarterback has completed 62.3% of his passes for 1,503 yards while leading the Johnnies to over 55 points per game in four straight victories. He has thrown 17 touchdowns to just one interception and rallied the Johnnies to a comeback win in a shootout with Aurora in round one. Does the Wheaton offense have the firepower to keep pace in a shootout with Erdman, whose young receiving core is now playing like seasoned veterans? Will they even need to? The Thunder boasts the nation's top defense for a reason. They can generate pressure with their front four, led by Dallas McRae and Patrick O'Connell. They are equally stout against the run and the pass, and seem impenetrable through their first 12 games. They are one of the nation's most dominant third-down defenses, and the more they can jettison Erdman back to the sidelines, the better chance Wheaton has of controlling the pace of this game. Only North Central, the nation's top offense, scored more than twice against the Thunder this season. The Cardinals put up a season-low 21 points in a loss in the Little Brass Bell game. Wheaton's other 11 opponents combined to score just 55 total points on the Thunder defense, and most of those were scored against backups in the fourth quarter of blowouts. While the Johnnies have averaged 53 points in their two playoff wins, they have also allowed over 36 points per game, which is cause for concern. On paper, the Thunder seem to be the better team. They have home field advantage. They have no weaknesses that have been exposed in 2019. But the Johnnies have Erdman. St. John's will need him to will his team to victory, similar to the way Brock Rudder willed his North Central team to a win over Mount Union in round two. The Thunder have shut down Rudder already this season and are prepared for anything that Erdman will throw at them. We've talked so much this season about the Johnny's quarterback and very little about the QB who ranks third in the nation in passing efficiency behind just Rudder and Mount Union's D'Angelo Fulford. This could be the game that gets the rest of the country talking about Luke Anthony and the fantastic season that Wheaton's two sports star is having. Wheaton has reached the semifinals just once in 2008 and has never been to a stag bowl. St. John's has a better postseason pedigree. The Johnnies lost a heartbreaker on the road against the dominant defense in the quarterfinals last year at Mary Harden Baylor. Erdman is determined to avoid a similar fate in his senior season. The Thunder are just as hungry to make history of their own. Keith, you mentioned that at this point you've already written your quick hits picks. I have not, and this is the game that gives me the most pause. I don't, I don't know how uh, that the Wheaton defense is gonna is gonna handle the the St. John's offense, especially up front. Is Erdman gonna have any time to throw? I know Erdman has talked specifically about uh, like facing the St. Thomas pass rush and knowing in practice, you know, they're gonna practice with you know him having you know however many seconds it is to get rid of the football, a ridiculously small number. That's probably gonna be accurate in this game. Uh, and then on the other side, you know, I'm sure that uh, Mike Swider and his crew look at that Aurora tape and go, well, you know, here's all the ways that we can attack that St. John's defense. Uh, I don't, you know, Luke Anthony is not uh, probably as good as Gavin Zimbelman in terms of, you know, elusiveness and 
speed and, and just all the things that uh, Zimbelman brought to that game and all those receivers. This is why I haven't made a pick in this game yet is I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do. For all the way we've romanticized last week, um, though it was such a great round two. Uh, it was really that one great game in terms of close finishes. Every one of these teams is coming in hot, and you're like, um, you can talk yourself into into any of them having no weaknesses or looking great or whatever. And I think Wheaton is probably at the top of that pile uh, with the way it dominated Central, a team that beat UW Oshkosh, which beat Whitewater the week before. So you're looking at a team that is playing and it's hot, it's dominant, has dominated other good teams. And I think everybody suddenly took up all the extra seats and and maybe, um, you know, some people are hanging on by the back, kind of like the just married thing and dragging along the back of the Wheaton bandwagon that North Central beat Mountain Union. Everybody's like, well, if Wheaton beat that team by two touchdowns and that team beat Mountain Union, Wheaton is scary. I'm still chuckling about the uh, everything uh, hanging off the back of the Wheaton bandwagon. That's a, That's an impressive image you put in my head, sir. Well, I, I hope it's not the – I have one more impressive image, I think – uh, later on the podcast, but yeah, I, mean, I, f- I feel like the Wheaton bandwagon is so overloaded all of a sudden that yeah, that's the only way you can you can catch a ride with them. So they're coming in playing amazingly. There's you can almost find no flaw. You heard Adam talk about it. St. John's, complete opposite. Great game last week, crushed Chapman 55-26. But you go back week before, they were down nine with eight and a half minutes left, needed to come back and beat Aurora. You can look at that one or two ways. How did they struggle to beat Aurora, even though Aurora was one of the top offenses in the country all season? Or you can look at it like they had Jackson Urban. They were down nine. They needed to score twice in eight and a half minutes, and they did it. And there was almost no no doubt that it was going to happen. Once he got them moving, that they were going to score, that they were going to win the game. And so you have that in your corner. No matter what it looks like, the situation on Saturday against Wheaton, you, you got a guy who can lead you back from behind. I think the the worry for St. John's is that it, it wasn't just this, the Aurora game, that where they haven't played well in the past month. You, you talk about the the Concordia-Moorhead game, and um, the, the worry is if St. John's turns in one of those performances instead of one of the ones like the Chapman game or the St. Thomas game midseason, then it could get ugly quickly. I think St. John's it's just a little, little too easy to overlook them to count them out because they've they've played some some tighter games recently. This is a team that was ranked in the top five for most of the season, right around the spot where where Wheaton has been ranked most of the year as well. And and so uh, I think you're probably going to get a great game, probably going to get a shootout, and I, I would be surprised if uh, if Wheaton wins by you know multiple touchdowns. All right, Keith, tell us about the uh, Muhlenberg Salzburg game. I know my job here is to tell you how things are going to go. Uh, but with Muhlenberg at Salisbury, I don't have a great read on even who should be the favorite, much less who's going to win. I'm going to pick Salisbury in quick hits, and they're the number six team in the country playing at home. But Muhlenberg is ranked fourth and coming in off back-to-back playoff shutouts. The Seagulls have put up 145 points in two playoff games, but Muhlenberg has scored 80. The thing I can absolutely tell you is that it won't be a 7-3 or a 10-7 game. Salisbury got absolutely torched in the secondary against Union last week on short balls to the tight end, deep balls to wide open guys, deep contested catches, deep balls where the DB was in position and misplayed the ball. You name it, Will Bellamy completed it. Union scoring 41 would have been more of a story if Salisbury's offense hadn't hung up 62. Some of the big plays came off play action in the week before SUNY Maritime, which got shut out 83-0. They missed a sure touchdown on a play action play. 
There will be guys running open for Muhlenberg on Saturday. Coincidentally, Michael Nakowski against Brockport was completing passes to his 6-1 tight end slash H-back to his 5-6 wideout and to his back out of the backfield. He had five touchdown passes and no picks last week. Muhlenberg should be aiming to pass two out of every three plays, and Salisbury should be looking to drop seven or eight guys into coverage. And while the Mules' defense has given up one touchdown in the past month in the second quarter against rival Moravian, playing in front of misdirection and movement-filled Salisbury rushing attack is entirely different. It's like the running of the Bulls is happening in front of you on every play, and you're trying to sift through the Matadors to tackle the Bull. So even if you get through all the trash, you might be trying to tackle a Bull, such as six foot three, 220-pound quarterback Jack Lanham, or 5'8", 200-pound slotback Mike Ryan Mofor. So the Mules are going to get gashed here and there. This is an offense that has run the ball 549 times this season and thrown 120 passes. Everyone knows they're running, and they still average 6.9 yards per carry. So whether you have 35, 34, 42 to 35, 35, 28, 41, 27, pick whichever you want, but figuratively take the over. And now let's hear Pat's thoughts on the final game of the four, Delaware Valley at North Central. Thanks, Keith. Yeah, that uh, North Central Delaware Valley game is going to feature two teams with more contrasts than similarities, one of which made its name in Division Three this season with offense and one which did so with defense. But even so, the two teams also, of course, play on the other side of the ball, and that's where I'm going to start in this preview. North Central indeed was torched for nearly 700 yards of total offense last Saturday at Mount Union, and uh, for a large amount of it, it was not pretty. But there's pressure up front, and there is help in the back. Look for defensive tackle Tommy Highland, who made a mess out of Mount Union down the stretch to be in the backfield almost as much as the Nobile brothers will be for Delaware Valley. Jake Beasley and Dakota Cremens are a potent combination in the secondary, and it won't be nearly as easy for DelVal quarterback Anthony Fontana to have success against the Cardinals. Uh, he's completed 64% of his passes, however, and he's thrown 28 touchdowns with just six interceptions on the season. Dante Simmons and Mario Nigro have combined for 217 carries and 1,070 yards on the ground, and they split carries pretty evenly so far this season. Nigro, more of a straight-ahead runner. Simmons, more effective on stretch plays. Plus, you can count on DelVal using a healthy dose of jet sweeps even perhaps a couple of times with tight end Dan Allen. Allen is the leading pass catcher for this team with 39 catches, 668 yards, and nine scores. On the flip side, people who hadn't already heard about North Central quarterback Brock Rutter, you know, our 2018 North Region Offensive Player of the Year who seems destined to repeat that, you probably learned about him last week when he threw for 522 yards and five TDs on Mount Union. So he's a six foot two senior and he just makes good throw after good throw after good throw. I mentioned this on the last podcast, but he hit running back Ethan Greenfield on a wheel route and just threaded the needle impressively over great coverage, hitting him in just the right spot for Greenfield to take it in for a 24 yard touchdown. Rudder and receiver Andrew Kaminsky have great chemistry. D'Angelo Hardy is a freshman who's a deep threat as well, and he's dangerous in space. Even Corey Blair, a junior who was only targeted twice and had one catch on Saturday, is a threat as well. Greenfield appeared to get his bell rung in the fourth quarter on Saturday and did not return. His replacement, though, Terrence Hill, was a welcome sight after he returned to the backfield, having missed eight games with an injury. The first game he missed was the little brass bell game. Before that, he and Greenfield had split carries fairly evenly, and I think we all know what happened uh, with uh, Greenfield since then. 
If Delaware Valley is going to win this game, it's going to be because of the Nobile brothers. Anthony recently returned from injury, and his numbers have been kind of limited this season, but Michael has an ungodly 30 and a half tackles for loss and 12 sacks this season, plus two forced fumbles, plus eight hurries, plus a safety. Someone or two are going to have to keep him off of Rudder because the only game that North Central lost this season was one in which Rudder was sacked seven times. Keith, haven't put you on the spot in a while, and I think we're going to do that right now. All right, only if you let me do it back to you. All right, I want you to identify who will be the top rusher in terms of yards on Saturday and who's going to be the top passer in terms of yards on Saturday. Wonderful. I mean, you'd think the top rushing attack would be Salisbury, but they have so many guys who touch the ball that I don't think you, you pick one of them. I think you, you would go with Greenfield if you felt confident about his um, – chance to play because of the way um, North Central runs the ball. North Central has maybe the best offensive line left in the in the tournament, although some other offensive lines would probably uh, stake their claim for that as well. I think probably your, your leading rusher is going to be Alex Pete. I know he splits carries with, um, with uh, Ronnie Ponick and Jared Ware at, at Whitewater. But they don't necessarily split carries evenly, and I feel like Pete has been the guy that they lean on in tougher situations. I think they're going to have to they, – they may be running into a brick wall or feel feel that way a lot against the Mary Harden-Baylor defense because Mary Harden-Baylor, not just uh, strong up front, but they're quick to the ball. They just rally. Um, they play – they they kind of sit in a – they play a base 4-2-5, and they kind of sit back a lot. So you won't see them blitz a bunch, and you won't see their um, – their cover men turn their backs a lot and play a lot of man. They'll, they'll stay in zone and so that those um, secondary players can come up and run support. So there will be a lot of um, yards will be hard to come by, but Whitewater is more than happy to run the ball 20, 25 times um, to, to one of their backs while giving their other two backs, you know, maybe 10 or 12 carries each. So I think if all three of them are healthy and, uh, and they lean on, on Pete, I think that's your leading rusher. I mean, passer is almost kind of easy, right? Cause you're good. You're going to either say – you're probably going to say Rudder. may say Erdman. If you're really feeling – I mean, if you're really feeling frisky, you could say Luke Anthony. You could say Michael Nakowski. Um, don't think it's going to be uh, Jack Lanham, although he may have the most total offense for all we know. I don't think it's going to be either the guys in the in the Mary Harden-Baylor-Whitewater game, even though Jay Samick has won a championship before. I think they would prefer – uh, to have him not not throw all that much. Fontana is a is a nice quarterback. Um, his most important attribute is probably taking care of the ball and spreading it out to all of Delaware Valley's weapons. I, I think if you, I just think that you you know how can you pick somebody besides um, besides Brock Rudder after the week he had last week? Even is all these other great quarterbacks still alive? Uh, I think that's your pick. My turn to put you on the spot. Take it. Go. All right. I stole a Twitter question, an uh, unused one from the Sunday call out. For those of you who live, who listen to the Monday podcast, we will always post sometimes Sunday night uh, a call out for questions. And so if you have thoughts bouncing in, there, in your head around uh, after Saturday night's game, go ahead and tweet them at us and they'll be uh, eligible for for uh, answer on the Monday podcast. This one didn't get answered last week, but I thought it was a good question. So I stole it. All praises due to EC Hammock for this. I'm going to add a twist to it, though. EC asked, can we rank, and now I'm asking you, can we rank the best offenses and best defenses left in the tournament? And uh, I need you to do it 
in 30 seconds. Max, no thought, no explanation. Just rank the uh, worst offense to best. And uh, I can do the other one if you want to do wor the worst defense to best uh, or least good to most good because maybe they're, maybe worst isn't the right way to describe it. Uh, unless you're man enough to take offense and defense, do both. I'll do whichever one you don't pick. All right. So when does my 30-second drill begin? As soon as you stop stalling for time and start naming off teams. I am so good at lightning rounds. Um, well, we're going to start with Salisbury. And then we're going to go with who else is in the tournament? St. John's. Um, and those are the only ones that I can really say are like, you know, subpar or less than par. So let's see. Um, we're going to have to start just naming names here at, uh, at some point, right? Man. Least, least good to most good. One of yeah. them gave up 52 points last week. Wait, somebody gave up 52 points last week. You had a name. You said Salisbury oh, yeah. okay. and St. John's. All right, yeah, North Central. We can do North Central for that reason. That's fair. Um, and then, you know, getting to uh, crap. Wow, because I really want to put Wheaton, like, one. Um, so let's see. Who else? Your choices right now are Wheaton, Whitewater, Mary Harden, Baylor, Muhlenberg, which hasn't given up a point in the tournament, and Delaware Valley, all right. which gave so these up are all, a whopping 10 last week. Yeah, yeah. So these are all the good defenses. And I'm going to put Muhlenberg in the five spot. And then um, we're going to go with, dang, DelVal, I guess. And then Whitewater. And then Mary Harden Baylor, two. And then Wheaton, one. All right. Good job being on the spot. I think that took a little longer than 30 seconds, but we'll let you slide because I wasn't running the timer. Give me the least good offense to the most good offense, right? Not the worst offense. These are not bad offenses by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, everybody last week scored at least 41 points. Give me the the one you're least confident in to the one you're most confident in. 30 seconds, no explanation. All right. Uh, number eight, Delaware Valley. Number seven, uh, Whitewater. Number six, uh, Mary Harden Baylor. Uh, five, uh, Muhlenberg, four, Salisbury, three, St. John's, two, Wheaton, one, North Central. I probably have to reevaluate that already. Uh, I don't think I, I put Wheaton, I should put Wheaton offense behind St. John's. So whatever that leaves it at. Yeah. Uh, it's almost the exact order I had in the one gripe I would have had. I don't know if, uh, I don't know if I would have put Wheaton as high as you put them. I, I think Salisbury and Muhlenberg. Muhlenberg is really a wild card in this tournament because they've looked so great, yeah. but they have not played a super tough team since, uh, since Susquehanna back in week three or whenever that was some, some point in September. Uh, they did play Johns Hopkins, but they dominated Johns Hopkins. It, it wasn't as close as the 31 16 final suggested. So, um, Really looking forward to see Muhlenberg play Salisbury, and uh, and, and that would be a good game. Um, appreciate you being on, being on the spot. That was fun. The points don't matter. That's right. The points don't matter. It's called being a professional. Points don't matter. You play to win the game. And then I give them points. I don't know why. It's just a gag to tie the show together. If you want to crown them, then crown their ass. Of course, uh, Quick Hits is our weekly Friday look at the upcoming set of games. Six people giving you six, uh, in this case, separate score predictions for the uh, second round games. And and yeah, we keep score because uh, if nothing else, we want to be accountable. This past week, Keith and Ryan Tips went 7-1. and one. Adam Turr and I went 6-2. and two. Frank 
Rossi and Greg Thomas went five and three apiece. Keith and Ryan are atop the leaderboard. If we were keeping a leaderboard, I've got it here. I'm writing it down at uh, 20 and four. Uh, Greg and I are at 19 and five. Adam and Frank are at 18 and six. Keith, I got to be honest with you. I really wanted to write down a different answer for one of the games, but I was going to that stadium and we're already not very well liked there. And I just didn't think that was going to be a great political move. Well, that's what happens when you, uh, when you try to be politically correct, Pat, you, your picks suffer. Um, I also think it was probably a, the, the right pick, the safe pick over the years, you and I, and maybe mostly I, I, I learned my lesson in the two thousands to 2010, Every year in like the quarterfinals, um, but maybe I would alternate years, but I would be like, I think Widener has a chance at Mount Union and they would lose, you know, 70 to 30 or 71, whatever that one was that year where they blocked like three punts and took them back for touchdown. Um, and that Widener team had been like dominant up to that point. I would fall for that every year. And then finally, at some point, I just made up my mind and I was like, I'm never picking against Mount Union until the semifinals. And uh, finally, uh, you know, I mean, I went like, you know, Probably got thirty something picks right uh, before before that one turned up wrong for me. So you ride the trend, and and I think Pat, you're right. There, um, it's not really about us keeping score, but it's cool to to hold us accountable because um, we get held accountable by our fans and friends on Twitter. That's fine. You know, you can get twenty games right and nobody cares. It's like the four that you got wrong that uh, that that people get at you for, and that's fine. We're, we're man enough to handle it. I um I worked for a man couple couple bosses removed named marty baron and he would he one of his journalism theories is like people don't necessarily remember the good things that you write they remember the mistakes that you make and so you have to be sort of on your game at all times and i feel like that's how these these picks have been you can get seven picks right in a week six picks right in a week but the the ones you mess up are the ones that everybody notices and hones in on yeah you can see this week's quick hits on the website by noon ish on friday and this was d3football.com around the nation podcast number 265 released on december 6th 2019 thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout the weekend if you like this podcast you know what to do i assume you've listened to other podcasts who tell you to give us a rating in say apple podcasts or google podcasts or spotify iHeartRadio, stitcher any of the gazillion places that one can get a podcast a good review will help other football fans find it and you can also leave comments for us on the blog page who knows a good review might get us into 100 outstanding college football podcasts which i'm sure is a list somebody somewhere is compiling and they've never heard of division three football at all you can reach us to talk more about division three football on twitter using the d3fb hashtag i'm at d3football and keith is at d3keith we have a message board devoted to division three sports did you know join the conversation by registering to post at d3boards.com also you can follow d3football.com on facebook the executive producer of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music and a lot of the other music used in this podcast is by DJ Mentos. And you can find him at DJMentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to our correspondents, Adam Turr and Greg Thomas, along with guest Duke Greco and sports information director Chris Elliott for their time and assistance on this edition of our show. And of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. One of my kids had some pretty advanced math starting in like fifth grade and I could no longer help him and I had to call on the older sibling. It was my understanding that there would be no math. I absolutely will be like, wait, okay, so how have they shown you this? 
And like I said, a lot of times I'm not even actually doing the math. I'm just like, all right, well, what do the directions say? The, the way they taught it to us is different anyway. So much of, in my humble opinion, test taking is like not freaking yourself out, knowing that you know most of the stuff because you went to school every day and you paid attention, identifying the stuff that I need to study this because I don't know this that well, and then not like restudying stuff you already know. And then like, get a good night's sleep, go in there, don't freak out about your test, oh, I'm fail, and psych yourself out before you've even taken it. That's also Keith's advice for everybody playing this weekend. There'll be a time to uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time. 